Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and unpack it into relatable concepts. I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan. In season one, we explored many cosmetic procedures, injectables, and skincare. Then in season two, we discussed reconstructive plastic surgery, including a few episodes on hand surgery. Now, if you're interested in hearing about any of those topics, please scroll back through the past episodes to find what intrigues you. And now, in this season three, we are tackling general questions that people have about plastic surgery. So today, we're talking about the basics of preoperative and postoperative care. What's important, and what do you really need to know? Having a reasonable understanding of these may save you some difficulties down the road. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and my opinion. It is not intended to give formal medical advice, but instead, you can use it to gain insight, even if you're just curious. So settle in for a listen and enjoy. You know, deciding to have a surgery can be stressful and anxiety-producing enough, let alone having to figure out preoperative and postoperative care on top of it. So let's do something about that. I want to put your mind at ease by giving you a constructive and helpful way to think about pre- and post-procedure care. Let's say you've decided to undergo a cosmetic surgery, or you need a reconstructive surgery. As you can imagine, the pre- and post-care for such can vary as widely as the procedures themselves do. There are so many different types of procedures, and of course each one has specific nuances regarding before and after care. Yet there are some general principles that are common to all and are important to be aware of. So we will structure this episode around those. There are things that you can actively plan for, do, or even avoid to achieve best results. And by the way, as we're talking about procedures here today, I'm largely referring to surgical procedures, though many of the procedures we discussed shortly could even be adaptable to minimally invasive or non-invasive procedures as well. Let's start with pre-procedure or before surgery. In an emergency situation, as you'd expect, there's not much choice or preparation because obviously you need surgery urgently. It is what it is. There's no time to prepare. But for an elective procedure, meaning one that can be scheduled in advance, you want to be in your reasonably best condition. So let's break that down and talk about three categories of your preoperative condition. Mental, physical, and situational. For the first category, you want your mental health status to be ready to handle both the procedure and the aftermath. What I mean by this is, you want to clearly understand your own personal motivation or need for this surgery, and not only be at peace with it, but also be motivated to stay the course through the healing phase as well. Furthermore, there must be a thorough understanding of the surgical options and why this particular one was chosen. And there must be a good grasp of the likelihood and the spectrum of potential risks, though it's important not to be overwhelmed by them. If an unfortunate complication does occur, this previous awareness may help you find the mental stamina to deal with it and to stick with its corrective course as possible. The next category is physical. This one might be a little more obvious to people. Physical preparation for the planned procedure will maximize results. Such physical preparation can take numerous forms. Sometimes it is quite specific to the surgery that is planned. 
For example, if you are going to undergo a tummy tuck with liposuction, you would want to be as close to your baseline weight as reasonably possible so there is less early settling of skin or contour irregularities from weight fluctuations that might occur after surgery. Now, notice I said baseline weight and not ideal weight. Our desired ideal weight is often not realistic or achievable, but the closer you can get to it prior to surgery, the better results you will have. You can actually learn more about this in episode number two, which is all about liposuction. And for, say, a facelift procedure, your surgeon may want you to precondition your skin with topical treatments in order to get the best postoperative result. I don't want to go into too much specific detail about that because each surgeon has their own tried-and-true regimen that helps them get the best outcome. And if you want to hear more about facelifts in particular, try episode number 12. But beyond specific procedural instructions, there are some general physical factors that need to be addressed before any surgery. The first of these is overall health. Now, if you have a chronic medical condition, you're not going to be expected to all of a sudden correct or change the course of that, but you should at least be under a physician's active care for it. Some medical conditions, such as heart conditions, can impact the anesthesia and create problems, such that for bigger planned surgeries, a medical clearance may need to be requested from your primary care physician. It's much better for the whole surgical and anesthesia team to be prepared for any medical pitfalls rather than be surprised during the procedure. And other overall conditions, such as diabetes, can negatively impact healing after surgery, so it's best to know about this beforehand. Furthermore, any ongoing short-term illness, like a cold or flu, should be reported to your surgeon as it may require a little delay in the timing of the procedure. You want to be in your best health to avoid problems. And this brings us to preoperative lab testing that is often done for larger procedures to help make sure that the patient is in good condition to undergo surgery. Usually these are done on the day of surgery, but sometimes before. The specific tests will be ordered by the surgeon or anesthesiologist, but one that is usually included for women is a pregnancy test. There have been a few surprises found that way. Also, a person's regular medications and the supplements they take need to be evaluated prior to surgery, as these could have a detrimental effect. In particular, blood thinners like Coumadin or Lovenox, for example, would be ideally reduced or stopped completely, but only under the guidelines of the prescribing physician. There are some situations where a person cannot safely be off the blood thinners, and special arrangements would have to be made for this. Again, it has to be quite individualized. And did you know that some oral supplements may tend to make a patient be at higher risk to bleed during or after surgery, such as garlic, ginkgo, fish oil, and even everyday medications like aspirin, ibuprofen, and vitamin E? These should be stopped as well, and usually your surgeon's office will give you a full list of these to avoid prior to a procedure. Nutrition, especially if it's going to be a big surgery with lots of healing time, should be tuned up as well. Now, most of us undergoing elective surgery are not malnourished, but it is true that poor nutrition can negatively affect healing, and dehydration or electrolyte imbalances can create some anesthetic problems during the surgery. So this is not a good time to be on a restrictive weight loss diet. A well-balanced diet for a few weeks prior to surgery is very helpful here. Anyone who has persistent problems with nutritional issues, though, may need some assistance with surgical preparation from their regular physician. It's best to avoid alcohol prior to a procedure, and for surgeries with planned anesthesia, 
Patients are instructed not to eat or drink anything for a certain number of hours beforehand, depending upon the type of anesthesia. This is a strict rule. In fact, surgery may be canceled or postponed if it is not adhered to. Why? Well, the reason has to do with stomach secretions that will increase if there is anything at all in the stomach. This can lead to a higher chance of a serious or even life-threatening phenomenon called aspiration, where, to put it bluntly, any potential vomit can inadvertently enter the windpipe and get into the lungs. Bad situation all around. Next, what about smoking? Well, if you've had a chance to listen to some of the previous episodes of this podcast, you've heard me say more than once how detrimental smoking can be to wound healing after surgery. And FYI, it also prematurely ages your appearance. For smaller procedures with shorter incisions, smoking will probably not have as much impact. But for bigger surgeries, smoking should ideally be stopped four weeks prior to the procedure. I fully realize, however, how difficult that can be for some people, and professional help may be necessary. You should know there are actually some surgeons who will refuse to do elective surgery of a certain magnitude if the patient is still actively smoking, and they may even go as far as to do a lab test to screen for recent use. Another consideration is skin health. We generally prefer not to operate on an area that has any break in the skin, such as a scrape or a cut or a burn, as there will likely be bacteria that has gathered in this region and could lead to an increased risk for infection or healing problems afterwards. And check with your surgeon if there are any body piercings which will need to be removed. Also, some patients wonder whether they should shave the surgical area before surgery. Each surgeon will have their own particular preference about this, but usually the safest bet is to realize that if the surgeon wants an area shaved prior to surgery, they'll have it done right there in the operating room. That timing reduces the risk of a little bit of bacteria already having entered the skin from the night before, should there be any small unnoticed shaving nicks from the patient pre-shaving. And the third category of preoperative condition is situational. This is the practical preparation, such as making plans for post-operative assistance at home. How are you going to handle any small children at home? And if it's going to be a big surgery and you're not supposed to be going up and down stairs, have you made some modifications at home to accommodate for this? Additionally, there must be planning for downtime. You need to be able to take the appropriate amount of time off of work and from other activities such as exercise and running errands. Of course, that needed amount of downtime will be different for each procedure. You may want to consider filling your post-operative prescriptions early, if your surgeon agrees with that, so you'll have them ready when you need them. And consider having any dressing supplies for wound care already purchased, so you won't have to worry about it after the fact. Also, if it's possible, make your first couple of post-operative appointments. That can be helpful, too. Even things as mundane as how you're going to get to and from the surgical facility are important to consider. Yes, there is a lot of practical planning that is required, but frankly, thinking about this ahead of time can be a great source of comfort as you head into surgery. And hey, that brings us right back around to our mental preoperative conditioning as well. Okay, we've covered the basics for preoperative care, but what about after-surgery care, which can sometimes seem like the bigger challenge? Again, specific instructions exist for each unique procedure or body part, but there are some general post-procedure principles that are able to be relatively universally applied. There are several things to think about and manage, so let's start with some of the more obvious, like wound care. 
Now, usually after a surgery, no matter how large or small, there will be a bandage covering a surgical incision. Typically, the wound is to be protected and covered, and it should be kept dry for as long as your surgeon recommends. If any special ointment is to be applied, you will be informed about it. It's important to respect and comply with these recommendations as best as possible, as they may help reduce the risk of infection. In addition, there may be a drain in place, which, as you've heard me say in the past, is your friend, so don't let it put you off. It's there to give a way out to the fluid that may be building up inside the wound so the pressure won't stretch out the skin or pop open the wound edges. Drain removal is usually done in the office when the daily amount of drainage decreases enough and is typically an easy process no matter what you might imagine. Now for the surgical wound, there may be external sutures or stitches and these may or may not be absorbable. If not, then the stitches will need to be removed in the office but the timing depends on the area where they are located. For example, stitches on the face are usually removed earlier than those on the body since the face has better blood supply and heals faster. There is a delicate balance of leaving sutures in long enough so that the wound can heal properly, yet not so long that their presence increases the risk of scar problems. This nuanced timing will be determined by your surgeon. And later down the road, when the wound is healed enough, there will be actual recommendations made for scar care since your interaction with the scar for up to several months can make a difference in its outcome. Just one component of that is protecting early scar from sun exposure. By the way, if you want more specific scar care ideas and instruction, listen to episode number seven. Another common but important issue to manage is post-operative medication. The first thing you think of, of course, is pain management medication, and that's pretty key. Sometimes it will involve a narcotic, but there are increasing options for non-opioid pain management, and we will discuss those in a future episode. Yet there are other medications to consider as well. Depending upon the situation, an antibiotic might be prescribed, especially if the surgery was to treat a traumatic wound that might have been contaminated before the time of surgery. And depending upon the procedure, perhaps an anti-nausea medication may be provided as needed. Based on the surgeon's preference, there can be some other helpful medications to utilize after surgery, either oral or topical, which could be of benefit. Besides certain specialized vitamins, an herbal supplement called Arnica Montana can be useful in reducing bruising and speeding up its clearing. Another medication called bromelain, which is actually extracted from pineapples, may decrease inflammation. The potential list goes on, but the key is not to add any of these to your regimen without the specific direction by or approval of your doctor. Also, there are external treatments that some surgeons find helpful in reducing redness or inflammation, such as LED light treatments after facelift or eyelid lift. But again, this depends on the predilection of the surgeon. The next thing to consider postoperatively is nutrition. Sure, there are some nutritional target foods out there that you could consider using to help boost healing, but that can also get more complicated than is really needed. Unless your surgeon specifically recommends something, just focus on a good, basic, well-rounded diet, as this may do as much for you as anything else. Keeping hydrated is important. Also, try to avoid alcohol for a couple days, as it dilates the blood vessels and could worsen any bleeding. What else might a patient need to manage after surgery? swelling. Besides early elevation of the involved area, there may be an indication for the use of a compression garment after surgery, depending upon the body part involved. An example would be an abdominal binder after a tummy tuck or a light chin strap after a facelift. 
These provide a means to reduce swelling, control contour, and give some general support to the area, which can be a comfort after surgery. Once again, it's on a case-by-case -case basis depending upon the procedure at hand, and specific instructions or garments are typically provided or arranged by the surgeon's office. Next to consider is activity level after surgery. Rest is important to let your body heal, particularly for the bigger surgeries. But even during this rest, periodic deep breathing is helpful to allow the lungs to fully expand, since they tend to be more compressed at the bases when we are not doing very much. And that, you might be surprised to know, can contribute to some early fevers or raised temperatures, which would occur too soon after surgery to be related to infection. It makes sense that after any procedure, you don't want to launch right into strenuous activity or exercise, and the length of restriction will vary from a day or so to several weeks based on how extensive the procedure was. The early concern here is that increased activity will raise blood pressure and could start some bleeding in the surgical area. Later concerns are of some type of mechanical compromise of results from too much activity, such as disrupting some of the internal sutures or shifting the position of an implant. But that does not mean you're supposed to be bedridden for the whole recovery downtime. To the contrary, in order to help prevent problems such as blood clots, it's important to periodically get up and move around a bit, at least from one spot to another, and shift positions, etc. But remember that this is a generalized statement and really needs to be tailored by your surgeon to each specific surgery at hand, as does the recommended timing to start driving again. Lastly, one of the most important things to consider postoperatively is the concept of commitment. If you're going to bother doing the procedure, you really need to commit to all of it, all that's involved. An example is commitment to make and attend all of your follow-up appointments as directed so that your surgeon can monitor your progress and adjust recommendations as needed. Another example would be your commitment to any postoperative therapy you might need, such as physical or occupational therapy after a reconstructive hand surgery it's a mistake to devalue its importance since it's going to have a direct impact on your functional results. And commitment to maintenance is needed. What I mean by this is that for some of the cosmetic procedures in particular, maintenance is needed and is really considered a continuation or extrapolation of good post-op care. All of these procedures can make great changes for patients, but they do not typically give static results that never alter. Unfortunately, that aging clock keeps on ticking, even though it's been reset to a new starting point. Periodic maintenance is often going to be of benefit and something that has to be committed to if you're trying to make your happy results last as long as possible. Well, we've gone over a number of important points about preoperative and postoperative care in this episode. And hopefully you will now have a more organized way of thinking about all of this and planning for it. Such knowledge can actually go a long way to reduce anxiety about any upcoming procedures. But again, these are just the basics and are intentionally generalized, since there are truly so many different possible procedures you could potentially undergo. Rest easy that your surgeon is looking out for you, and they will typically give you specific instructions well ahead of an elective surgery so that you have the time to become familiar with what's important for your individual situation. And with that, I wish you a happy and healthy surgical outcome. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something too. 
don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.